Welcome to By the Seat of Our Plants, <laughs> the award-winning podcast. Congratulations. You're the number one producer of this show, Ben. <laughs> I'm also actually the last, like, solidly the very last on the list of producers, you know? That's true. The Alpha and the Omega. It's great because I get to treat myself like shit and then complain about it. <laughs> Oh, we'll pay you eventually. <laughs> I swear. We'll have money one of these days. I don't need money, man. I don't I just need food. We'll we'll have some respect for you one of these days. <laughs> once the respect starts coming in. Yeah, that's what I need is the respect of my peers. Yeah. Money's nice, but what really matters is like social rankings and affirmations. It's true. It's uh if you're it doesn't matter whether you're liked or not, it matters whether you're liked or not. <laughs> Yeah. Doesn't matter how well you're liked, it's how much you're liked. Right. That is kind of the um the lesson of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight though, isn't it? Money's nice, but what you really need is a little head nod from uh like a fatherly figure. Yeah, it's all about the importance of keeping your head on your shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Oh shit, sorry. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Damn it, dude. <laughs> Yeah, there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this episode. Yeah, you're <laughs> 800 years late to the party. Uh, but that's okay. A lot of people are... are the glory of a film, and if you, you haven't guessed from our... Uh, not actually subtext, just regular text. We're talking about uh, The Green Knight, and also Sir Gawain and The Green Knight. The book and movie duo repetition um alternate versions of the thing there are two versions of the same thing there's a movie that came out what last year two years ago a couple years ago oh, no uh, uh the movie came out uh 1200 ad and the book just dropped a couple years ago okay yeah yeah that explains it yeah explains all those so uh, we'll be talking about the book obviously yes yeah. that one really did well at the box office just tearing up the Epic poetry, religious allegory, and other charts. Yeah. Yeah, it fits firmly into that other category. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Because it's not just religious allegory. Um, there's metaphysical allegory in there, too, uh, which the movie got a lot of mileage out of, but it's there in the it's there in the original poem as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of many layers to this story, if I remember correctly. I remember not liking this story very much like mm -hmm. the first time i heard it i think i had to read it in high school i was forced to you know <laughs> forced to read it just yeah. like all the other shit that you're forced to read in high school and I, it just seemed boring and like it's probably the artifact of the way it was presented but just medieval literature in general mm -hmm. was kind of like i don't know this was like around the dark ages or something who knows people sucked back then and mm -hmm. these stories aren't good you know and like <laughs> we're smarter now you know like type of thing then I took a um, medieval lit class in college um, just because it was one of the only ones available that was going to fulfill a, a degree requirement. Mm -hmm. And it actually was awesome. Like it mm -hmm. was so great. I had this incredibly charismatic teacher who was super goofy and just had the worst jokes, but they were all, <laughs> you know, like bad, good. Mm -hmm. you know? And she really, really loved medieval literature and told the stories in like a different way that was really engaging. Mm. 
And I also one day showed up to that class. It was a 9 a.m. class. And me and my suite mate had um, hot boxed in the bathroom mm -hmm. and eaten pot brownies before <laughs> came to class. And uh, it was a really good class. I think I learned a lot. But maybe that was the day we talked about the Green Knight. I don't know. <laughs> really just experiencing the, uh, the sea monsters and the massive axes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I also had a, a series of really wonderful uh, poetry and early English literature professors in college. Um, there is this one guy, I won't, I won't say his name, but he was a professor, Moore, a professor, yeah, professor, professor Gawain, professor Greenway. Old Dr. GK. Yeah. <laughs> professor Dr. GK. Um, <laughs> That's Mr. Professor Dr. GK. <laughs> about four feet, nothing in, uh, in heeled boots. And, uh, super intense fierce personality he collected uh replica swords Whoa. from like viking swords and anglo-saxon swords i think he had a copy of the wearable copy of the sutton who helmet which he might have made himself what? um and they weren't like blunted swords like they were sharp like i remember um i didn't experience this but one of my one of my friends said he, he heard a commotion down at the edge of campus down below the baseball diamond there's a, a little scrubby woods and he heard this ferocious shouting and, and rustling down there and he kind of poked his head in and saw professor dr gk just yelling and wailing away at the saplings like just <laughs> just working something out after class one day um but he was awesome he uh he had a uh a skull's harp uh, and so when it came to read oh, beowulf cool. he like sang it to us in the old in the old no english shit. and so we would we would you know he'd sing a, a passage and you know that really helped for me anyway, understand the bridges between that version of the language and the modern version of the language is yeah. hearing somebody who actually spoke it fairly fluently in, in a form, you know, a little bit more authentic to how it might've been presented at the time. Yeah. Hearing it spoken is like a completely different experience from trying to read it or speak it yourself, like, mm -hmm. you know, without any idea of what, yeah. <laughs> what it's supposed to sound like. It's such an awkward seeming thing right and yet if you start to do it suddenly you realize like these word shapes are pretty familiar to my mouth and my brain mm. despite itself is grasping some of the grammatical you know mechanisms here it's weird i i mm. remember reading some in some of those older versions of what we call english now and being like surprised how quickly my yeah. tongue and my mind were able to enunciate and also comprehend things that just didn't make sense to my eyes. Yeah. You know? Like where doth Nareth and Fanny Yorlthona his Ellen dare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it is that fate often saves an undoomed man when his courage holds. Mm. Or that's my favorite translation. That's the how old, how old chickering chick chickering translation. Oh yeah. The Seamus Haney one is, is maybe more beautiful, but it's, it's yeah, that's more, more popular too. It's I more think Seamus than it is. Um, Beowulf poet, or like fucking Chaucer, right? You know, one that opera with his sure so the drunk of March hath pierced it to the rote. Mm. Um, you know, when April with his shores have been sought, the drought of March has pierced to the root, mm. et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's Haney? Uh, no, that's uh, Chaucer. Oh, oh yeah, nice. Canterbury Tales. So that's later than, than even the Green Knight, which I don't know any passage of by heart. Oh, that would be cool if you had like just pull that out. Yeah. I mean, I could probably read it and fake it, but it wouldn't yeah. be. Well, it wouldn't be honest. And radio is all about 
honest depictions yeah, of realistic life is just, representations uh, no of life. editing whatsoever just <laughs> getting this live yeah you can trust that'll, what comes out of your internet box yeah absolutely that'll be a patreon only thing the unedited version unexpurgated <laughs> the snyder cut of the green knight <laughs> the snyder cut of our conversation about the green knight oh man <laughs> i i don't want to record that let alone listen to it <laughs> Oh man, this movie's so good. Oh man, so tell me about what you what you loved about it. Do you want to? I guess we don't really need to let's sum tell, up the plot let's or tell anything. The story. Right? I mean, we can do it in like less than five minutes. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Sure. Uh, once upon a time, there was a Camelot, and it it cam a lot. <laughs> Cut that bit. Let's rewind. Once upon a time. <laughs> In uh, ye olde Angeland, um, you know, King Arthur, right? And the Round Table and Lancelot and uh, all those other dudes. Christmas Day, they're all feasting and dancing. Knock at the door, in marches a green knight who throws down a gauntlet metaphorically and also maybe literally and says to the assembled party, I propose a Christmas game. Anybody can land a strike on me with my big fucking ax. And in one year's time, I will repay the blow. And in exchange, you get my awesome ax. Yep. And the knights are like, Ooh, he's too scary. I can't, uh, I can't handle this. And Sir Gawain, who is a young knight or maybe not quite a knight, uh, who is a kinsman of King Arthur and whom King Arthur has had some touching exposition with earlier says, I will do it. And he goes up and he whacks his head off the green knight's head off the green knight unfazed, picks his head up, uh, laughs merrily, says, I'll see you in a year. Come to the green castle, the green chapel, excuse me, mm. and I'll repay the blow and then rides off. Then yep. Sir Gawain spends the year hawking and drinking and whoring around and generally frittering away his time. And, oh, and when, like boasting. Boasting, right. Like with the axe yes. and shit, right? Yeah, showing yeah, yeah. It off. Showing it off, waving it around, chopping pumpkins up. Yeah. Being a lad. Uh, in December... He is hustled off by his household. Is like, you got to make good your promise. He goes and has a series of allegorical adventures, which we'll probably talk about in greater detail later. Ends up at the Chapel of the Green Knight, who proceeds to... I don't give it away. <laughs> anyway, that's the story, basically. Yeah. Yep, that's it. There's, there's some details and stuff in there that are varying levels of importance. You know, I would maybe bring up the, the sash... Yeah, that, right. Uh, oh, I forgot about that. Guinevere gives him. It's Guinevere, right? Several people give him a sash over uh, the course of the story. And I love the way the movie handles that. Mm. Um, Morgan Le Fay, who is um, the half-sister of King Arthur and the legendary witch to Merlin's legendary wizard to Arthur's legendary king to mm. Gawain's legendary knight, um, weaves it for him. Or maybe his sister weaves it for him. Mm -hmm. Or maybe his lover weaves it for him. It's not totally clear. Yeah, yeah. And then he loses it on the way and then is given another almost identical sash by a lady of a right. household. Right. Oh, I forgot about this part in the movie. Yeah. I love that part. What's interesting about the... like The movie is way more serious and straight-faced, po-faced than the the story. Yeah, which is totally. full of like jokes and one-liners and just like dumb comedy like there's a bit <laughs> yeah. at the beginning where the the knights are kicking around the heads of people who they've uh or no 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 the head of the green knight is rolling around biting at the ankles of the knights <laughs> and they're all like 
leaping away from it, being frightened by it. It's very funny. <laughs> um, and there's a jumping ahead a little bit. So Gawain in the, over the course of his travels is given hospitality by a lady and her Lord and this castle on the edge of oh the wilderness. Okay. I'm, I'm so glad that you've seen this mm-hmm. more recently because I, it's been at least six months since I saw it. Yeah. And I remember these things when you say them, but I couldn't be walking everybody through it the way you are. Right I now. mean, it's such a dreamlike imagery. I, I, I'll be interesting to see how this sticks with me. Yeah. As time goes on. It's funny when you're, when you're saying these things, like I'm remembering them almost the same way that you remember a part of a dream yeah. while you're like making coffee in the morning or something, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, the cinematography in this is beautifully precise in, in the totally. consistency of tone it's able to evoke through a lot of very different types of imagery and speeds of yeah. scene pacing. Mm-hmm. There are very slow moments and very fast paced moments, but it all feels of a piece. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, the the Lord and his lady, right? So the it's kind of a your typical allegorical three part shaggy dog story joke where the Lord <laughs> is a big hunting hunting fan and says, Every day I will go out hunting and the best of what I bring back I will give to you, Sir Gawain. And Sir Gawain, the best of what you receive in my household, you will give to me. And so he goes out hunting and shoots a stag, and meanwhile, the lady of the house is attempting to seduce Sir Gawain and gives him a kiss. Mm-hmm. And so the the Lord of the Manor comes back and he gives him a, gives Gawain a stag and Sir Gawain gives the Lord a kiss. And it's kind of a, a funny one-liner joke. Yeah. Um, but the movie plays it totally differently. Like it takes yeah. these allegorical figures and just imbues them with so much humanity and reality. Totally. They're almost unrecognizable. Like I remember mm-hmm. when I was watching it, because it's also been a long ass time since I've read the story. Yeah. Um, but when I was watching it, I was like, where the hell is he right now? Like, right. I don't remember this part. Um, you know, and when you say the Lord and the lady and like all that stuff, like, yeah, it's like crystal clear in my mind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, they were so real. So uh, just so uh, convincing and like people-y, you know, like yeah. they weren't, um, they weren't funny plot mechanisms or, or jokes. They were like real people living in this incredibly weird <laughs> castle. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. They're still f- mythic figures, but they're people, not, um, not things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a movie in recent memory that spends so much time and so much care dealing with kindness as this movie. Mm. Like wow. in the early scenes with Arthur and Gawain and Arthur and Guinevere, there's just mm-hmm. so much time and care shown showing people being nice to each other Mm -hmm. and like really regretting being distant or not there. Mm. You know, the scenes with Gawain and his mother, Morgan Le Fay Mm -hmm. are just full of so much generosity and kindness. Like all of the the parts of Camelot are full of people being going out of their way to be nice to each other. It's a, a real depiction of the chivalric ideal, which obviously never existed. It was always bullshit, but there is like in any kind of religious or mythic literature, something beautiful even within a system that has been exploited for brutal purposes yeah there's something there yeah totally i i remember thinking that gawain's you know when he when he volunteers to take up the Mm. the wager of the green knight in the story and and i guess all the other times that i've interacted with the story it's kind of like 
man, what an idiot. You know, like who would do that? Like, obviously, like mm -hmm. this is not going to go well, you mm -hmm. know, like he must be really full of himself. And then mm -hmm. that sort of carries over into the story about him, you know, being who he was for mm -hmm. the, the year that came after that. Right. Yeah. I definitely felt there was a lot more earnestness, like, mm -hmm. and, and just kind of like, uh, in, in the moment that he volunteered, he wasn't being a fool that was so full of himself. He thought himself invincible. Like he was being brave in a way that, you know, only somebody who didn't know what they were getting into would be brave, but it was mm -hmm. still, it was still earnest. You know what I mean? Right. It wasn't boasty it wasn't braggardly you know right it was to do the honor of the house exactly not to be and, one of the knights not to be himself yeah and it seemed like the other people there were genuinely kind of appreciative of it yeah and like surprised and like whoa hell yeah yeah know? yeah the way that the kind of applause and celebration after the green knight leaves um yeah was filmed there's so much of filming non-verbal communication that this movie did so so well mm. you know a lot can be done I, yeah i mean it it would not work in any other medium it's nice to see yeah this story told just so yeah it's it's funny that you bring that up because there are there are a lot of i can think of more of them now since you've said it but there's like a lot of examples of of generosity and kindness and just um you know humanity between the characters um but that also extends to some of the less like savory interactions you mm -hmm. know where it's like it's it's still like a very like heavy um substantive believable human interaction yeah yeah but it's not really like positive you know <laughs> like so like Definitely. when I'm thinking of when the the He's riding through the battlefield. He gets mm. to that battlefield right after that big <laughs> battle is over. Right. And the guy's picking over. There's a, a young guy, mm -hmm. like a thief or whatever, or uh, a, a, I don't know, a varmint or something. And he's out mm -hmm. there picking over the bodies, getting whatever mm -hmm. he can get. And he sees uh, Gawain, who at this point has the sash and has not a spot of mud on any of his, <laughs> you know, kingly armor or anything like that. Real knight in shining armor looking. Dude. Literally. And he just sees a mark. You know, <laughs> absolutely. And I can't remember what he says to him, but he's like, uh, Gawain basically asks him for directions. Uh, and he's like, yeah, the river's that way or something. Yeah. <laughs> and he just points like, him into a trap. Right. He's like, well, will you, will you give me something for your, for my time? Uh -huh. you know, I helped you out. Will you help me out? And Gawain's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Gawain's an asshole to him. I right. forgot about and that. And he's like, yeah. come on, man. What the hell? I'm picking corpses here. I'm looking for my dead brothers. Will you not help a brother out? And he's like, oh, fine. He just flips him like a coin. Right. Yes. And then gets himself into mischief yeah um yeah it was funny like this movie was also perfectly cast like mm -hmm. every single role in it was no no other actor i know of could have possibly done it like nobody does bewildered or anguished surprised quite like dev battle who is that gowan oh yeah and i, I was thinking like maybe the only other actor who could do that would be like barry keowen keowen however you pronounce it and then, like, a minute after I thought that, he shows up as the scavenger. And I'm like, oh, no, this is the perfect, you know, it's, this is just the right role for some Irish shenanigans. Like, yeah, totally. That's a, that's a good um, point. No. Yeah. Gosh. What did, did you have anything, I mean, this is like mm. a plant podcast, like, and I, I would say the, the movie definitely, I think the story has a lot of significant plant mentions, right? Like, aren't there mentions of ivy? and um other significant plants in the original story yeah well i mean the whole thing is 
it's an interesting allegory of a time of colonial conquest and expansion of Romano-British culture into mm. Wales. Mm -hmm. And so the original story borrows, borrows a lot of borrows, steals, reinterprets, or I'm not sure what, a lot of motifs and elements from Welsh mythology into mm. it. Mm -hmm. And there really isn't one unified thing as Welsh mythology. You have a whole bunch of individual tribes, hamlets, cultures, etc., cetera, mm -hmm. that all got pushed into that corner of England by the expanding Romans and the, well, not just the Romans, by the, the people who came over before the Romans. And then when the Romans invaded and settled down and intermarried and formed a syncretic culture with the lowland Britons, mm -hmm. which is, you know, Arthur's people, maybe, although there are Arthurian legends in other, within Wales itself, mm -hmm. and then in other parts of, of Britain, the Isle of Man, Brittany over the sea in France has Arthurian type mm -hmm. archetypes in there. Anyway, in the 13th and 14th centuries AD, the Romano-British folks were beginning to take more take over political sovereignty over parts of wales and that's the era in which this poem was written down at least um or at least this is the version that's passed down over the years was written down around then in the mm. late uh late 14th century i believe mm -hmm. so 1300s late 1300s so there are a lot of these elements from that particular period and obviously both both cultures syncretic of many different subcultures all of them very invested in vegetative imagery and yeah. deity interpretations of deity and vegetative forms, but in different vegetative forms. Yeah. So the whole theme, what makes this a very faithful adaptation in, for modern audiences is a reinterpretation and a recommunication of these older themes of death, regrowth, balance, the minimization minimalization mm -hmm. of human concerns mm -hmm. within a broader natural pattern that would have been part of the common knowledge of the folks experiencing this, these stories mm. back in those days. Yeah. It's got to be put, the bow's got to be put on it a little bit more precisely for people from our culture to recognize them. But I think the movie True. did it very skillfully. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, I feel like we should define syncretism just in case yeah. that's a, a stumbling block for anybody out there. Uh, two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Wait, wait, when you take one thing and another thing and you mash them together, you get a syncretic yeah. phenomenon. Like an ice cream, like ice a, cream sandwich. Exactly. Like syncretism. Yeah. One, one panel is uh, Gnosticism and the other panel is um, rigid authoritarianism. And you put them together and you get... Uh, Church Christianity. <laughs> yeah, that is a a tale as old as time, you know? Like mm -hmm. <laughs> truly the Snyder cut of monotheistic religions. <laughs> it's definitely out. the Snyder cut because uh, uh yeah, it's pretty dedicated fan base that wants it. Nobody else really seems interested. Yep. F fascinating in its own right, but not something I would dedicate four and a half hours to. Yeah. Not not interesting enough for me to sit there and <laughs> endure it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, for our remaining listeners who haven't. Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. That's such an interesting perspective. 
the sort of like mashing together, blending over time, and how that relates to colonialism, settling a new territory, arriving on a new piece of land. Yeah. Um, We're expanding after having been there for several, mm -hmm. you know, dozens and dozens of generations. Because like the, so the folks who built the megalithic structures in, in England and Ireland and Scotland, um, like Stonehenge Stonehenge and and so on, right? Like they, so they, those sorts of folks are, you know, culturally and ethnically of a piece with the people who are speaking Basque languages now. Mm. They believe that Basque is one of, seems to be a very old language that's disconnected from a lot of other languages in Europe, but seems to share some weird connections to some other languages in the Southern Mediterranean, oh, interesting. Um, like Sicilian um, mm-hmm. and uh, Maltese and, and other, you know, weird remnant cultures there that were, that predated the arrival of Hellenic cultures and other folks, mm-hmm. Phoenicians and so on all throughout the area. This is a gr- gross oversimplification. Anyway, so a lot of those types of folks ended up kind of in the corners of the British Isles, the south of Ireland, the north of Scotland, and mm-hmm. Wales, and also the Isle of Man, mm-hmm. when the Britons arrived in the British Isles. And the Britons were Celts. Celts came out of China originally. Really? Um, yeah, red, red-haired, freckle-faced mummies coming out of... Oh, man. I'm going to butcher... Oh, you know, I've heard about you know, this. But... Yeah. Yeah. Which is not actually how it's pronounced, but it's now yeah. up in weaker country. Um, yeah. Anyway. No, that, that made it, that was a, a big uh, conspiracy sticking point. The red haired oh, yeah. mummies. That what? That there can't be, that people can't move around in history? Um, well, no, that they were clearly not, not like terrestrial people, you know? Like, right. Because. Because they had red hair. <laughs> right. And they were right. in the wrong place. It's just something special about the Irish. Huh. Yeah, some secret space program yeah, shit. The, the floating emerald isles. Yeah, there was this whole thing about he was like, uh, he was a fucking king. Oh, a king of one of those like races in the oh. whole secret space program. Did they, yeah, the King Arthur Project? Yeah, something oh like that. God. Uh, Up there with their giant trees and their fake birds. Yeah, right. Exactly. Man. Uh, yeah, no, the hi- hi- history has happened. Mm-hmm. Even even the history that is not um, not part of our, our tellings of it. Anyway, yeah, so Celtic people came out of, out of Central Asia a long-ass time ago um, and made their way across Europe, um, settling down along the way. And what's interesting to see the ways that the different different arrivals from... Uh, Eastern and Central Asia into the European half of Eurasia have kind of the speed at which those migrations go and the farther west they've gone, because it's always almost always has gone from, from east to west, folks coming out of the steppes and settling down into mm-hmm. the plains and hill country of Europe proper. Um, it slows down the farther west they go. It's like people are like, no, this place is awesome. Why would I want to leave? Mm. Like, uh, interesting. the Celts got as far as they could into Iberia, Spain, and the British Isles. And then only well, ran out of land at that point, but it was far after they had settled in Galicia and Thracia and all those other places. Mm. So when they got there, there were already people living in the British Isles, the people who built giant stone structures, and they intermarried, settled down, but also pushed, or for whatever reason, the folks who were more 
intent on preserving their way of doing things and not integrating with this new Celtic way moved to the margins. Mm-hmm. And Wales was one of those margins. And then when the Romans came uh, a couple thousand years later, pretty much the same thing happened. The Romans were a lot more vigorous and warlike and imperial, you know, you know Rome. You know what it's yeah. like. It sucks. Those people were assholes. Yeah. Uh, and also just trying to get by because Rome was big. and Rome was like the TSA of the known world at the time. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, just fucking the, with people. The, <laughs> just making them wait, take off their shoes and wait in line. Yeah. I need to touch your balls for some reason. <laughs> on over here, sir. <laughs> can't can't cross the English Channel without uh, little cut your papers. <laughs> um, but it wasn't a lot of Italian Romans who ended up in Britain. Some of them were Sarmatian horsemen, and these were more folks from the steppes of Central Asia, people who rode horses all day long in big heavy armor. They had uh, flowing banners. Their armor was very shiny. Mm. They had knightly orders. So this is, some would say, oversimplifying dramatically the origin of the sort of knights in shining armor. Interesting. This was the model for the Clive Owen King Arthur story that was filmed a couple years back. Yeah, I never saw that. It wasn't very good. Yeah. It was interesting. I I think it didn't get a great reception. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those purporting to be realistic while just being the usual Hollywood. Oh, holy shit. I I did see this. This Does it have um, Orlando Bloom? Maybe. uh, Kieran Knightley plays a kind of Boudicca Guinevere. was, Was it called Kingdom something? I don't remember. I might be blending it in my mind because I think a couple like, I don't know, just like throwaway movies on the same topic, <laughs> but like not using the exact word King Arthur. There really hasn't been a good King Arthur flick since John Borman's Camelot. I don't think I've seen that. Oh man. Classic 80s uh, hair metal era. Oh, of, uh, yeah. All right. I'm down. Cinematic uh, I'm practical sold. effects. <laughs> a lot of squibs. It's great. A lot of squibs. Thinking like Highlander style. Yeah, like, like, like the Mort Arter done is in the Highlander style. Mm. It's pretty good. Mm. That's actually, speaking of, you know, syncretism, that's mm. some great combination work right there. Uh, Highlander and anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great double bill feature. Yeah. Or, or Mort Arter and, and, I don't know, 80s culture in general. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's true. Both like to the max. So good. Super rad. It's more of a um, 90s thing. Yeah, so the Romans sort of pushed the Celts out right. similarly, so, right? Yeah, so Roman inhabitation, they just housed... So they took all of the, the ass ends of their kingdoms and farmed them out to all the career soldiers, a lot of whom at that point... This is when uh, I, Claudius, was emperor mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm period. <laughs> um, you know, in the in the middle, the middle bit where you had all the, the good weird emperors, uh, Claudius and Caligula and... Mm-hmm you know, three or four Tiberiuses. So all of, a lot of the career soldiers who were, you know, Germans or Mauritanians or Greeks or Sarmatians or whoever, folks from the front, folks who were not ethnically Italian by any means, but had been hacking off heads in Galicia for the past 13 years or whatever, mm-hmm. were given their 40 acres and a mule out in some ass end of the British empire, or excuse me, the Roman empire, which happened to be Britain in this case. Mm-hmm. So a lot of folks from all over the world ended up settling in in England uh, and then intermarrying with the local client tribes who had been suppressed at knife point. All of the most extreme, intense anti-Roman folks fled up north of Hadrian's Wall, which hadn't been built yet, into Scotland. And there was such a problem of so many dudes and so few women that they adopted 
so the Romans say the process of polyandry, where one one wife queen would have several semi-disposable husbands in much the same way that that intensely patriarchal cultures will go the other way, where one dude will have a couple of wives. Mm-hmm. Um, although there's argument to be made that that was actually a much older practice because a lot of those cultures were legit matriarchies long mm-hmm. before the Romans got there. So Queen Boudicca, sword swinging, chariot riding badass of Queen of the Iceni, Mm. Gave the Russian, gave the Romans a run for their money, sent them a Russian kiss. <laughs> Queen Boudicca. <laughs> we're uh, keeping that one. We're keeping that one. It's a good save. Man. <laughs> so, Queen Boudicca. She sounds like somebody I would not want to fuck with. No, yeah, nobody fucks with Boudicca. I mean, they they did fuck with her pretty badly. Her, her end in life was not a happy one, unfortunately. The Roman Empire was not one to be fucked with either. Oh yeah, especially but, if you're a woman. Yeah, or a somebody who has desirable real estate that you're trying to offload four thousand German mercenaries onto mm. because you're tired of paying their wages and yeah. want to be rid of them. Yeah, you they, gotta, you promised them that they would get their fields. Yep, gladiator stuff in your backyard. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> so, so that's the Romano-British. Basically, is when the Brit- when the Roman Empire was finally falling apart and they just could not keep their their satellite colonies going anymore they just withdrew any municipal support back to the capital and just left this hodgepodge melting pot of sarmatians and mauritanians and germans and so on along with the iceni and all of the other british tribes who were partially conquered and subjugated and occupied to basically fend for themselves and so Mm. that culture that cultural ferment became what we know as the romano-british which is a major syncretism of a bunch of different peoples mm-hmm. who ended up mostly speaking the Brythonic languages of the time, or at least adopted their grammar. Mm-hmm. Because when England was invaded yet again, several hundred years hence by a bunch of German folks, uh, the Angles, the Saxons, mm-hmm. the several different varieties of Danes, etc., um, it was the Saxon vocabulary, the Germanic vocabulary that was given a Celtic, a Q-Celtic, if you're following along at home, grammar that makes... Q-Celtic? Q-Celtic. There's P-Celtic and Q-Celtic are the two big families of Celtic languages in the British Isles. P-Celtics, P-Celtic languages were mostly speaking in Ireland Mm -hmm. and in Scotland because the Scots were actually Irish who invaded Scotland, uh, displacing the Picts in something, something, something AD. Yeah. Um, we'll get that something. in later. We'll get that in later. Whatever. Um, <laughs> Jamie, look that up. <laughs> <laughs> in turn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Q Celtic is the, the mainland English stew dialect. A lot of which okay. was, you know, mixed in with all of this other hodgepodge words. So when the Saxons came on and gave modern English, it's Saxon Germanic vocabulary, it was spoken with a kind of Spanglish style grammar Mm. that was all Celtic. And so that's why English is such a weird fucking Creole language, because Mm -hmm. we have a a Saxon vocabulary and you know, Germanic languages in their in their parent form are agglutinative. You know, the all those those funny German words where that are like a million a million letters long because uh-huh. you just have a, a ton of suffixes and prefixes. You just keep adding them on. Yeah. English doesn't have that. No. Um, and we don't have gendered pronouns or anything like that. So no, sorry, we do have gendered pronouns. We don't have gendered nouns. 
just regular style gendered nouns. We have gendered pronouns. I was just going to let you keep rolling on that. Yeah, no, just. I bet I can stick Maybe the other one in my mouth. Maybe we have gendered pronouns. <laughs> well, we don't now. Finally, we have like, we've got the two gen primary gender pronouns and finally a, a neutral gendered pronoun, which is so fucking useful um, linguistically. What, they? they, yeah. Yeah, I feel like we've had that for a really fucking long time. It's been like three months, man. <laughs> I mean, like, it was used, like, I was reading the intro to Left Hand of Darkness by yeah. Ursula Gilligan the other day, and she was talking about how the the use of they, how far back that goes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it goes really far back. Oh, and I was hilarious. just like, damn, she didn't even know about what was going to happen with that word and oh. how, how many people were going to get mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, it's, it's a, there's like a lot of written uses of it huh. from a long time ago. That's awesome. For the same exact reasons, because this it's is really just, handy. Sorry, total distraction. Oh, no, no. I mean, that's part of it. Anyway, all of this is the very roundabout way of saying this is, these are the two cultures that are interacting over the Welsh border mm -hmm. at the time that the Green Knight was being at okay. least put to paper cool. is this yeah. Romano-British stew of Sarmatian knights, maybe, and mm -hmm. definitely a ton of German mercenaries and mm. a ton of, you know, subjugated Iceni and other British tribes of Celts. Yeah who had been maybe oppressing, maybe settling down with the pre-existing Basque-ish, megalithy type people, a lot of whom ended up fleeing or just hanging on in Wales. And so this, the motifs that are in the Green Knight are mostly Welsh, but the language it's presented in is mostly Rhythonic. Although this is also after the Saxons have been on the scene for a while, and so mm. this is years and years and years after the Anglo-Saxon invasion. And so the Romano-British and the extant surviving members of the megalith building cultures down in Wales and Isle of Man and Scotland and Ireland, etc., formed essentially an uneasy truce around about the time of the German invasions because, mm. you know, anything's better than these fucking foreign assholes, right? Yeah. <laughs> They don't even speak our proper language. Yeah, enemy of my enemy is my friend, though. So. And then the same thing happened again with the Saxon inhabitants and the remaining members of the Q-Celtic, P-Celtic, and Megalith builders when the Normans invaded and tried to boss everybody around. Mm. We're like, what are these fuckers? They speak French, and they're Vikings for some reason. That's like, <laughs> you can't, can't double dip like that. <laughs> yeah. That is way, that build is way OP. <laughs> Damn. And that's where we get the the inherent class bias that permeates English, which is kind of weird for a language to have that much inbuilt hierarchy. Mm. So like you can say urinate, defecate, um, copulate. And that's, you know, not something you would say in polite conversation maybe, but at least it's formal and proper, but shit and fucking and pissing, those are dirty words. Why are they dirty? Oh, well, they're German, they're Saxon words. They're what, yeah. the, they're what the peasants speak. Yeah. You know, you eat, venison you kill deer deer is a germanic rooted word mm. venison venison is just french yeah it's a food it's culinary right yeah. wine is spoken of with terroir that's french unreconstructed french that's just straight up norman french yeah because we, we talk do that about sometimes in yeah English. just take the word from the other language soil that is a slightly fancier proper form that's high german dirt low german mm. Wow. Anyway, yeah. there's a ton of that in, in English. I really like that 
those that word selection you had there at first. Mm. Urinate, defecate, conduit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mean. that's crazy, man. It's, it's so complicated. It's so fun to have that background though, or to to be aware of that stuff and and watch a movie like The Green Knight, where mm. you know normally and probably most people have encountered The Green Knight as a written thing that was like a translation of a translation mm-hmm. and then cleaned up and usually probably excerpted, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just so you know the story of King Arthur or whatever. And I don't know, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's a lot more to it that makes it so much more interesting to, to, to engage with. And, and the choices that the filmmakers have to make reveal, uh, that is so sort of like, their levels of engagement, I guess, mm. relative levels of engagement with those different intertwined histories and stuff. Like, I kind of feel like maybe the the Clive Owen uh, King Arthur, if I'm thinking of the same mm. thing that you're thinking of, was maybe more like what you would get in like a five page excerpt, <laughs> the you cliff know, notes of in in a medieval literature mm-hmm. textbook, right? Like, not not quite as like embedded in the actual history and the actual sort of like uh, interplay between different people groups and their cultures as they, you know, play out over time, you know, because of power dynamics, basically. I don't know. I, um, something that I love about, uh, the Arthurian legends, uh, in particular, and it's just, it's really this feeling that I get when I think about these stories or when I revisit these stories and I felt visually that it was really well represented Mm. by this movie. There's this kind of like growing Mm. rooted, uh, sort of like tenderly feeling, mm. right? Like overgrown feeling to that whole universe mm. in my mind when I visit it, you know, like, um, there's moss on everything. Trees are really old. There's always algae on every body <laughs> of water, you know? And, and I don't know. I, I felt like the way they represented the green Knight in the movie was cool because he was kind of overgrown himself. Mm. Um, and then, you know, spoilers, obviously, but like at the end when he gets to the chapel and the chapel mm. is just totally abandoned mm. and it's being reclaimed by various vining growths, you know, it's sort of falling over and seems decrepit, like a place that was forgotten that you wouldn't want to go to. That feeling, mm-hmm. uh, was, I was like, yes, like when, <laughs> when he walked in, I was just like, yes, you know, <laughs> like. It's so good. Um, and there's that sort of magical component to that, right? The magical mm. realism. Yeah. Um, of of it being something very earthly, very terrestrial, very physical, and yet numinous. Mm-hmm. And um, having these many echoes in other planes, it feels like. you know, Using color filters, too, in different sections of the movie to mm. suggest other world when mm. the, the characters go from the... The regular world to the other world of Celtic legendry, mm. like the whole scene at the end in the the Green Chapel is shot with this intense yellow filter over it. Yeah, yeah, the light changes for sure, and it's just it's clear that this is this is a dream world, but it's deadly real, mm. and it's not green. Like the green is the implication. The green is from the texture. The green is from the surroundings. Mm-hmm. Like. They're not literal with it. I love the way that they've taken, like, you don't need the history to understand all of the themes that were in the original piece because here they are. They're just presented um, connotatively, suggestively through this this 
piece of art. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that also makes me think of that scene where uh, our, our hero, Gawain, is misled and then waylaid mm. by the guy who's picking over the bodies. Right. And he gets this vision, this sort of premonition of his own death and decomposition, right? Yeah. You remember that scene? Yeah, he's bound hand and foot and left after all of his gear, his, his beautiful, um, bl- the, the shield that for like five minutes of film time, this priest blesses and paints with a <laughs> devotional imagery and it's all so of this, special. all of this stuff that is just like all the shining armor, right. Mm-hmm. Is just stolen by these assholes. Yeah. So and, easily with like this low effort trick. Right. They just, <laughs> yeah. It's three stooges level combat. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so they bind him hand and foot and the camera pans away from him flopping around on the ground to the earth around growing and flowers bursting forth. And at first my thought was like, what the fuck? This is, it's in December. Where's all this greenery come around? The, right. The and it's pans, like the camera's facing him. And pans does 360, 360 right? And it yeah. comes back to a, a completely decayed corpse. Yeah. Just skeleton sitting there. Yeah. You know, uh, there may even be moss and creepers growing over him at that point. I don't remember. Yeah, there's just been, you know, a, a 50 year time lapse or yeah. something of this, it, this body just sitting here on the on the forest floor. And then it goes around again and it's Dev Paddle looking anguished, anguished and surprised as usual. Yeah, just he's back. He saw, he's he like, saw oh God. that maybe or, or has somehow the information has been communicated to the character and the audience simultaneously. Right. Like these visions are indicated by the actors as being significant and it changes their behavior as a result. Following right. He through. sees that and that's what motivates him to try harder to get up because right. he's like on the verge of just giving up. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then he's able to sever the man. I love that too. Like he gets to, you know, the classic scene where you, you hunch over to a sword blade and you, you cut your, your arms right. free, yeah. but he actually cuts the shit out of himself when he's doing it. Yeah. Like, as would probably happen if you tried to do that with your of hands. Bound. Yeah. I love that they showed that. I forget. Was it a sword or, or a knife? Like what did he I cut himself? I think it was a sword. Yeah. Why they would have left the sword there. That scene. Really... Oh, right. Cause he steals the, uh, the scavenger steals the ax. Like that was another weird. That's right. And the ax is like stuck in something or. Yeah. He picks it up later. I don't remember where, but it was an interesting moment. Cause like, were this a more realistic style movie, the person who waylaid him probably would not say, I'm going to go do your quest better than you. And then ride <laughs> off into the sunset. But that's exactly course. what happens. Yeah. yeah. And we never see that character again, except maybe. And I think the battle scene too, that he's scavenging from is a battle that later on we witness in oh. the film. And I, I don't want to give this away because there is a, there is a nice kicker at the end, which, you know, when you see it, you'll know exactly what's going on, but it still aesthetically makes, makes wow. more satisfying viewing to view it for your, yourself for the first time. Oh man, I got to rewatch it now. <laughs> but Cause time, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, but it oh, sounds man. great. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one thing this, this film does well to, again, the spirit of the, not just the spirit, but the, what the worldview of the people who were telling the story back in the late 13th century is an understanding of cyclical time Yeah, that we do not have in this culture. We've really got to shoehorn it in. And this movie does a pretty good job with a shoehorn. Yeah. I mean, that scene that we just talked about, the right. 360 pan where we go forward and backwards in time just over the course of this 
slow pan. I mean, that's, that's genius level stuff. Like yeah. in order, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to take the hard way and get your message across in your medium, um, in an, in an obvious way mm-hmm. where it's, it's immediately apparent and, and just about anybody would say, this is what's being communicated. It's mm-hmm. much more difficult to do it in a way where you don't exactly notice it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you think about it later and then it makes sense to you, you yeah. know, like, um, like even when you just said cyclical time, like, it's like the fucking camera moves in a circle in uh-huh. that scene. Like right. that's so fucking genius. It's like work smart, not hard. Yeah. You know, like let that visual vocabulary do the work for you that the narrative itself probably wasn't even designed to do and couldn't do, you know? What's interesting too, is that the original narrative is way more like realistic or um, maybe more materialistic in its interpretation of events. There are double exposures and kind of a twist ending. And it's a way more materialist framing of this kind of story, which is not exactly in keeping with the older source material in some of the Welsh legendry, again, like mm. the Mabinagion, which is full of of cyclical elements and things that narratively seem very unsatisfying when you're reading them as a, a linear narrative text, but would probably work a lot better as part of an oral tradition, particularly a sung tradition that has mm. you know repetitious musical elements as yeah, part of it. Yeah, for sure. And also in a culture that just has more dimensions to their grammar for speaking of time than a linear past, present, future tense, Mm. which is a limitation of English and probably a relic of its, its syncretism as a, as a Creole language of Mm -hmm. just finding some way for all of these people from all over the Eurasian world to just find a way to communicate with another, with one another. Like Mm. there are elements of English that are way, way simpler and stripped down dumbed down even compared to other languages of Mm. comparable age and complexity um, that I can only think are relics of its, its necessity as a trade and lingua franca between people speaking Mm -hmm. much more different home languages. Mm. But that's another wormhole. (laughs) Yeah. Gosh, I really want to rewatch it now. It was such a good, such an enjoyable experience it is helpful to know the story Mm. before you see it i will say that for anybody who's thinking about seeing it uh and just going in like carte blanche or something like it is it is nice to to have some of the basic facts and to sort of be familiar with different takes on it Mm -hmm. you know like different translations or something not that you need to go do a whole bunch of homework you're just (laughs) it's not gonna be as enjoyable if you're like I've never even heard of Sir Gawain before going to watch that movie. You might be like, what the fuck is this movie? You know, like I bet it would work though. Honestly, it might, it might. I'm I don't just know. on the strength of the imagery alone. Yeah. And I'd be curious, uh, dear listener, if, if any of you are going into it cold, um, I don't know if you find a way to communicate with us, let us know how it was. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe through our Patreon, you could do that and kick us a couple of bucks while you're at it. Yeah. Um, sorry to be crass about it. You get, um, is it like 500 words for five bucks that we'll read? We'll promise we'll read up to 500 words for $5 and thousand words for $10. What? Really? <laughs> no, <laughs> not out loud. Not on the air. <laughs> no, 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 not out loud. Like just, we'll literally 
read them. We'll read them, yeah. Like, at all. Yeah, okay. If there's no money attached to them, we won't read them. Yeah, no, we're just um, symbols only, like wingdings. You're going to have to write it in. Yeah. We'll read 500 wingding characters. Yeah. No, that that's obviously a joke. We would read anything. I would say, is there any significant like plant things that someone oh, could right. look out for as they're going to watch <laughs> Why the movie. we're talking about this on this show yeah right that was a very interesting mm. conversation but it's not it, we weren't talking about the botanical elements at all we didn't really talk about the botanical elements yeah there were actually and i think that's that was one of the most effective ways the movie had of conveying the ethos and themes of not just the story as it was recorded and written in the late 1300s, but of the myths and legendary that contributed to that particular version of the story. Mm -hmm. And again, it's that sense of cyclical time of the diminution of human events, even courtly love and knightly valor in the face of the broader human world or broader, more than human world, excuse me. Mm. Um, and in some ways, the more realistic elements of the written story, the unmasking of the Green Knight as a secret mask of one of the characters you meet earlier in the story, as sort of a like M. Night Shyamalan gotcha moment, <laughs> is just as cheap as they all are, right? Yeah. And it seems as tacked on as a lot of the a lot of the secondary interpretation that's interpolated into a lot of old old English and middle English texts by like, I don't know what to say, but like monk censors, like there's like, there are elements of the Beowulf manuscript that have this sort of interpolation of somebody censors going into this like deep, um, very obviously non-Christian, super pagan, other world description. And then at the end, there's like this. That is something that explains it really there's two, obviously. There's two stanzas that don't even fucking rhyme or follow the same <laughs> yeah. rhyme scheme. They're like, and by the grace of God, we got out of it alive. It's like, okay. But they have like on, anachronisms man. in them. Like, like exactly. we looked it's at our like, pocket watches and got out alive. <laughs> basically, yeah. It's like by the grace of the Christian God, who we didn't know about at this time in history when we were talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing. Exactly. So it's it's in in Gawain and the Green Knight. There are those kind of elements as well that seem kind of tacked on to make the story more suitable for the reading audience. And who was the audience for this? Right. It was lords and ladies who were reading Middle English. Who were the lords and ladies reading Middle English and not Latin at this time? Um, you know, it would have been the the Saxon. Um, or maybe, no, by 1300s, it would have been the Norman aristocracy mm. reading a quaint um, a story tale. of the the subjugated peoples yeah. before their time. Um, so the stuff's got to be dressed up to make it appealing. Folks who, I mean, every single iteration of people who have come into the British Isles have appropriated the King Arthur story for themselves. And mm. where it came from originally, I honestly have no idea. If it's a very, very, very old megalith builder story that got communicated to the Celts, it seems like it probably had its origins among the Celts and then was iterated on by future peoples. But mm. um, anyway, the the notion that none of that actually matters because what's really important is the cyclical nature of time and the life of the landscape. There's one really great shot of the full panoply of Camelot or Camulodunum 
as when he's riding away when he's riding away and on one side is camelot rising out of the swamps and the other side is a series of ruins and yes i do remember this just the visual juxtaposition tells you everything you need to know about what the story is about Mm. doesn't have doesn't need to it i mean it hammers it home visually but it doesn't need to expend any dialogue on that that point well and it's just another example of like effortless you know the power of leverage essentially Mm. in in a visual medium where that's happening literally in the background like yeah the action of the scene is uh you know gawain is riding towards the camera the camera is moving backwards away and you know the ruins and camelot are both entering the screen from opposite sides and mm-hmm. converging onto a point of distance and yeah. behind him there's children chasing him uh-huh. and like teasing him i yeah. think throwing shit at him and stuff <laughs> yeah it's it's just effortless because all i don't know your your eye does all the things for you right you know um I, I love those shots like that, where it's like uh, the whole story is there in this one shot and you wonder why they linger on it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe it comes to you a little later. Like, yeah. It's because it says everything. And and that's actually a perfect segue into mm-hmm. what I was going to ask you mm-hmm. about, which was, what do you think about the sort of, and I, I think this is like a pretty, like sort of mainstream understanding of of how of what this story is about right mm. of of like the um maybe the green knight symbolizing this kind of like decay mm-hmm. and this sort of like long history like you know being connected to the ruins right um mm. sort of the green chapel particularly in the in the movie version being totally overgrown and decrepit and shit riding into the halls of power mm-hmm. throwing down this gauntlet um transcending all the symbols of power that exist and all the you know everything that makes the state what it is, which mm-hmm. is the, the force of the gun, you know, or the sword yeah. in this context. I don't know. Like, like, what do you, what do you think about that? Totally. I mean, that plays right into the colonial context of the story yeah. as composed. Um, yeah. That the, the green knight is a, a transgressive figure, a trickster yeah. figure that upsets the balance and, encourages change and reminds definitely in the film version reminds the city of its place in the broader narrative of history Mm. that the green chapel is resplendent and resurgent that the green knight gets his head chopped off and he puts it right back on again Mm. he leaves exacts because he knows he's going to be back for it Mm. in a year in a hundred years it doesn't matter he'll get his axe back yeah he'll be chopping the heads off noblemen all down the history historical lineage yeah and sitting like sitting in some forgotten throne mm-hmm. in some forgotten you know structure in the other world like that yeah. the other world endures it's one yeah. of regrowth yes so i wanted to get back to that too because your mm. point about the filter yeah in the in the chapel um yet another example of just effortless storytelling through mm. the visual medium but like that's sort of like a signal that we're in this other world, right? Like when he walks in, shit changes a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I might be remembering this wrong, but I think he's looking at the green knight sitting there and the green knight seems mm-hmm. to be like a statue yeah. or, or a tree or something. That's not uh, a person, yeah. you know, like sleeping or something. He sleeping stays there maybe, for yeah. a day and a night. That's right. Yeah. And there's a time lapse there too, isn't mm-hmm. there? What's cool is that 
you'll, you'll see these almost static shots of the Green Knight staying, sitting there with hooded eyes, but his eyes are moving slightly, like his eyelids are opening and you can see the glimmer of his eyes mm -hmm. under the lids. Um, forget the name of the actor who plays the Green Knight, but... Oh, he's a, he's a favorite of that director and mm -hmm. of that production company. I can't remember his name either, but he's genius. He was also in The Witch. Mm -hmm. He's also in The Northman. He's also he's in every single movie that they've been doing lately. Yeah, I mean, he's great. Yeah, he's so good. He was in uh, The Lighthouse. I think he was the the I think he was the guy who dropped him off at the Lighthouse. Okay, uh, he's genius. He's yeah, so good. just amazing physical performance. Like does a oh. tremendous amount with not a lot of screen time. Yeah, and it's just his voice is like mm. it's so funny because I remember the first time I saw this guy was in the British version of The Office, hmm. where he played this just frat douche, <laughs> like, you know, like the guy who was really popular in a frat in college and then mm -hmm. got a great job right out of college and never changed, yeah. you know, like just That's hilarious. overbearing and loud and coarse. And mm -hmm. it's so funny to see him in these like super dignified mystical <laughs> roles now. Like, mm. But yeah, no, I... Uh, sort of the incursion of the natural world onto the ordered hierarchical structures that we impose on it. Um, and but, constantly in every single iteration and every single interaction with these, these figures from St. Winifred, who is a, a kind of a lady in the lake ultimately. Is, is that who gives him the sash? No. Who, who's that crazy lady who gives him the sash? Am I remembering this correctly? So the lady who gives him the sash or gives him the sash back is the lady of the Lord in the right in the okay, castle at right, the end right, of time right, yeah yeah who also is played by the same actress who plays sir gawain's lover and partner back home in camelot oh i didn't know that i mean yeah alicia vikander underrated actress ton of range mm. um basically playing two very different characters and again feeding into that cyclical narrative like is are we seeing what gawain is seeing in this person like is are the lord and the lady of this mansion humans or are they fey and they are presenting themselves mm. as what he expects to see or wants to see and thus you know they're showing him his heart's desire the woman he wants most the man he wants most in his life and that um there's also the nature of the game animals that the lord is shooting which are are never shown directly they're only in the background often out of focus but they their they're anatomy huge, is a little they? different from what you'd expect in an ordinary stag or a boar yeah they're like huge and weird yeah they've got a few too many tusks a few too many antlers weird spines <laughs> yeah. like the whole thing is um you know in the context of again of the of the mythology of the original story it hints at it and it shows what the skill of the film is in showing the significance, demonstrating the significance of the weirdness of this moment. Mm. Um, there's one point where the, the lady of the house makes a very unique kind of portrait of Sir Gawain using a camera obscura right. to essentially take a photograph of him using 13th century tech or 14th century technology yeah he has to sit still for a really long time mm -hmm. and I, doesn't she like she opens the curtains and shit like right so she makes like a a, a, a pinhole camera camera obscura yes. yeah to project his image upside down and i appreciate that it was done upside down the way that light mm. would move in that situation um 
and it also is is thematically significant that his face should be inverted at that stage of the story. Mm. Anyway, every single part of this film was done with care to bring this very, very old story, which was written about much, much older stories, to life and significance, most importantly, to us, the modern audience. Mm -hmm. And being as these are cultures that are not so alienated from the world around them that are that don't submit to that fallacy of reifying or putting up on a pedestal the non-human natural world recognizing the threat the danger the ambivalence of that world as well as its beauty its healing potential its mm -hmm. kindness and its indifference yeah and it's 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 eternity in that cyclical you know state yeah, the world we inhabit is inevitable. There is there is no bargaining with the Green Knight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. He's <laughs> going to get his axe back. <laughs> He's going to get his axe back. He's going to strike you no matter what. Right. And that's just going to happen. And mm. this this whole film, this whole story is one way of expressing a way for humans to understand that process. Mm. Our, that we're not... a we're not apart from this world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Gawain is traditionally interpreted as sort of our ego or mm. our, you know, unearned, our hubris, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good telling of an old story. I agree. And I also have to recommend, based on what you just said, mm. the utterly horrifying the witch <laughs> by the same director mm. um thematically of a piece uh utterly just so beautiful about uh you know a small quaker township who casts out a uh, family for you know, some small moral infringement, and then they're just left to homestead on their own out in the woods in New England mm. in the 1600s. And there's a witch in the woods. <laughs> and it's like, an, you know, after this conversation, I'm thinking it's really like if the Green Knight was a horror movie, huh. you know, like that's basically what it would be. <laughs> like super, super, super good. Like cool. um, the level of care and detail. It took like five years to make because they had to, search out somebody who knew how to make thatched roofs in the old way. <laughs> and they awesome. found this guy who's one of the only guys left who knows how to do this. I guess he's been, he worked with Colonial Williamsburg for a while because mm. he was one of some lineage of people who knows how to do that. Mm -hmm. And he actually had to build the homestead. Wow. And uh, when you just see the buildings, just like all the movies that this mm. director does, it's Robert Eggers, I think. Yeah. He wasn't. Uh, did was Eggers it, do the Green Knight? Did he? I don't no, know. I thought it was somebody else. David uh, Lowery. Oh, maybe you're right. But a lot of the but same it's all from the A24. Yeah, same, same production. Same company. production house. But in any case, uh, a lot of the same visual density, you know, where it's like there's not a lot of wasted space on screen. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything kind of tells you a whole bunch of stories. You can kind of pause at any point in the movie and, you know, <laughs> like follow as many different rabbit trails as you want. Totally. I'm just looking up the, uh, the director, director now of, I think you'd enjoy it. I mean, it would be 
a struggle because I love horror movies and that movie is so scary that I've only been able to watch it twice. <laughs> as much awesome. as I loved it, I just like, I would start watching it a couple of times and be like, no, fuck this movie, you know? Like, <laughs> I didn't even make it all the way through Midsummer. so. Oh, it's, um, it's totally different, it's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely more of a third act scary. Definitely. Know? Okay. Yeah. David Lowry. That's what I thought. Okay. Wow. It's look at a... that mustache. Wow. That is impressive. Look at that. You could pull that off. I, I, I mean, it's, it's getting on time to take this, take this monster down. <laughs> I think it'd probably kill me, but. It um, might, yeah. You might lose all of your um, legendary strength. Yeah. Right. That's <laughs> all. I, I shaved off the top. So it all is down in here. Now. <laughs> yeah. That's what Sam, that's where Samson fucked up. If he had a beard. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't, shouldn't have left the chops. Yeah. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today while we talk about the Green Knight and ye olde England. Uh, if you would like to find us online and give us your dough, you can at patreon.com slash buy the seat of our plans. If you like the show, tell a friend. The more people who are listening to us, the merrier we will all be. So we really appreciate your tuning in and stay tuned for another action-packed episode. Same plant time, same plant pace, place, whatever. (laughs) Thanks, guys. See ya.